Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries and constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com. And this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gill at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Francine Brau, who is Professor of Industrial and Labor Relations and Professor of Economics at Cornell University. Uh, she's a research fellow of the National Bureau of Economic Research, Institute for the Study of Labor, Institute for Economic Research, and German Institute for Economic Research. Welcome, Francine. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So. Um, our topics of interest today, we have had some conversations around this in the past, and I'm very interested in this topic, um, uh, given it's uh, sort of uh, things are changing, things have changed in the past, things have sort of slowed down is, is what I gather. So I want to start with your uh, earlier paper from 2000, Gender Differences in Pay. So this, this has been put in the context of uh, year 2000. So you say, you say here, over the past 25 years, the gender pay gap has narrowed dramatically, and women have increasingly entered traditionally male occupations. These two labor market outcomes are closely linked, since considerable research suggests that predominantly female occupations pay less, even controlling for measured personal characteristics of workers and a variety of characteristics of occupations, although the interpretation of sexual results remains in some dispute. So you say here, in this article, we describe these important gains. So these, these gains are 25 years, you say, so from 1980s uh, onward, analyze their sources and point to some significant remaining gender differences. We also assess where American women stand related to women in other countries, and conclude with uh, some thoughts about future prospects for gender pay gap. So, yeah, this is very interesting, Francine. <laughs> so, uh, sort of stepping back into 2000, um, I guess in some sense there's sort of excitement when you look at the numbers from the from the 70s, late 70s into 2000. Things were really, really improving uh, in some sense. So, do you want to put this in the context of, um, you know, sort of in the historical context? Yeah, well, um, going back even a little further, especially with respect to the gender pay gap, there were many years in which uh, there was no progress at all. 
So women for, for many years earned about, women who were working full-time year-round uh, earned about 60% of what men earned. And then really starting uh, in the late 70s or around 1980, there was massive uh, progress. And the gains were particularly large during the, the decade of the 80s, but they continued. And so uh, we got to a point where women were earning, say, uh, about 80% of what men earned. And so it, it looked like we were on a path where uh, considerable progress would be made, had been made, but more was coming. Hopefully more was coming. Uh, and so, uh, so what happened in the 80s uh, and early 90s from a policy perspective that made, that made this happen? Well, you know, actually, um, it was not entirely due to policy, I believe. Um, what what uh, happened in the 1980s, uh, and this is uh, drawing on research uh, with my Cornell colleague Larry Kahn, uh, women really upgraded um, uh, a lot of their um, qualifications. And so they became uh, more firmly attached to the labor force, and that had been going on for quite a while. But uh, they really narrowed the gender gap in experience because how much workers earn in the labor market is closely related to their prior experience and the skills that they have learned, the seniority they've accrued. So they uh, increase their experience. They increase their relative educational attainment. So historically, actually, uh, men were uh, more likely to go to college than women were. But um, among young women starting in 1980, women had caught up and they were 50% of college grads. And if we can look to the future a little, they actually became the majority of college graduates. So women upgraded their education, their experience. As you mentioned in the intro, uh, they made a lot of progress entering traditionally male occupations. So women had always been well represented as professional workers, but they tended to be clustered in traditionally female professions uh, that are very important, but do tend to pay less. Uh, so we're talking uh, nursing and elementary school teaching relative to law and medicine, for example. Um, yeah, so I, I'm I'm familiar with this concept, <laughs> Francine. So I went to undergraduate engineering school in India. Uh, and uh, the school that I went, uh, you know, take 250 people, 247 of them were men. There were three women in the 250. This was the wow. mid 80s. Um, and, and so, I mean, obviously, a developing country with, with different culture and different ideas. Uh, so, the skewness to education. So, you talked about education and experience as sort of proxies for. Uh, so, I'm looking at it from a company perspective. So, the, the company is trying to maximize shareholder value. They say, you know, given the choices, how do I do that? And education experience are really important characteristics there uh, from a shareholder value maximization perspective. Right? That's correct. And also what you anticipate. So um, I think that by the 1980s, employers could anticipate if they hired a woman that she would be um, 
a long-term employee. She wouldn't necessarily, it's a stereotype, but in earlier periods, it was a stereotype. Women moved in and out of the labor force, they might quit, et cetera. Sure, so, the, so that's also interesting. So it's the expectation of the hiring manager uh, is sort of a long, long time horizon. So he or she is trying to maximize, again, when you make a hiring decision, what is sort of the expected utility uh, from the hiring decision given given different choices. And so education and related experience really helped us in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but if I remember this correctly, uh, Francine, I just skip the paper, uh, skim the papers. Um, late in the 1990s, things have sort of slowed down. So what is the reason for that? Well, it's hotly debated. It's hotly debated, but um, let me just step back a minute in talking about this, the slowdown. Um, so the gains in uh, narrowing the gender gap slowed down, uh, the gains in narrowing occupational differences between men and women slowed down, but also the increases in female labor force participation also slowed down. Mm. And uh, that is especially notable because women have been increasing their labor force participation uh, since World War II, since, um, you know, the late 1940s. And as we may circle back to in other countries, women did continue to increase their labor force participation. So it's a, a bit of a puzzle um, and people have been trying to explain various uh, portions of it. Um, but I think that if we look at the whole picture, it seems to me that we need kind of we've gotten as far as we could without some highly aggressive policies and we probably need to do a bit more in the policy arena um, we could start with labor force participation so um, why has that stalled and 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 really by now we're talking 25 or 30 years mm. in which female labor force participation hasn't increased further and and as I, I've said in, in the work that you were uh, reading, uh, the U.S. went from one of the leaders among the industrial uh, economically advanced countries, one of the leaders in labor force participation, to actually um, bother down the bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, one way in which we differ from our uh, counterparts abroad is the support we give to working families and especially working mothers. So uh, we devote uh, less public resources to childcare. And um, this became, the, the problems in that area became especially apparent during COVID and we could come back to that. But, you know, to a great extent, um, families are on their own in the US and trying to make these arrangements. Yeah, and uh, let me also this. mention parental yeah. leave. So that's right. another yeah. area we've been skimpy, but we can come back to those. Yeah. So we'll come back to that. So I, I was just wondering, Fran, I, I don't know if this is in the paper. So I'm thinking, you know, sort of contrasting 80s, early 90s to the, the late 90s. And one phenomenon, I mean, we had a huge economic growth. I and mean, then we have the internet phenomenon. We had, you know, a lot of economic value added um, during that time. Do you think the the sort of the high economic growth regime 
um, had something to do with it? Not, not necessarily in terms of uh, technology. So an interesting point about technology is the following. On the one hand, the tech sector does remain uh, relatively male. So that yeah. is an area um, where women haven't made as many re inroads as elsewhere. Indeed, uh, uh, computer scientists progr slash programmers are no more, uh, they have no more, no, no higher representation of women than they had quite a few years ago. But on the other hand, women are more likely than men to be white collar workers and to actually work with computers. So um, a lot of the um, technological, and they are now relatively more highly educated than men. So a lot of the broader social um, impact of technological change hasn't necessarily uh, worked against women. In fact, in, again, in my research with uh, Larry Kahn, uh, one of the things we emphasized is that shifting demand conditions have actually favored women relative to men in the sense that men are more uh, heavily represented among blue collar manufacturing workers. And that's a sector that's taken a big hit. Hmm. I also wondered, Francie, I just want to get your perspective on this. So there's some initial conditions problem here. So my dad is a professor of engineering and I grew up um, with the trucks and um, and buses, models of trucks and buses. Um, I don't know how the US situation was, but there is a general tendency to expect guys to do certain things, so they're you know, good in mathematics or whatever. Uh, and so those initial conditions actually set you off in a different tangent, right? And it should have some, some totally Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, one of the interesting things about uh, the female labor force is the extent to which women have succeeded in moving into traditionally male areas. But on the other hand, uh, male and female labor forces remain quite segregated in terms of occupations. And, you know, here again, we can debate why you know, how much of it is preference and interest and how much of it is uh, discrimination and uh, is that discrimination conscious or unconscious? But uh, d definitely uh, the, the slowdown in women's progress is because in part of the stickiness of uh, women getting into certain areas too that I would mention is uh, one you hinted at already is what we call STEM science, technology, engineering, and math, especially more mathematical uh, scientific fields. And uh, another is actually skilled blue collar work. I mean, there's a number of women who could benefit financially at least from moving into skilled blue collar jobs, but th th there has been very little evidence of that. None really. Yeah, but okay. there's also sort of a local optimization problem, right? So we have to look at this from a family perspective. Mm -hmm. So this is a sort of a shared responsibility um, in the family. Then um, potentially you're rationally optimizing, uh, given the conditions outside, let the man go out and work. I mean, we have lived like this for 100,000 years, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the men go out and hunt, and the, and the women, um, 
stay home and, and nourish the family. Uh, in some sense, the modern world is sort of like that still, right? Uh, I'm extending this a bit. Well, um, I actually read, not my area, a, a very interesting paper recently about how women actually were doing a lot more hunting, <laughs> than <laughs> I thought, even then. Uh, but, um, you know, if you look at this uh, gender division of labor, uh, first of all, in the family, uh, that is important, uh, certainly, that women still, on average, and uh, I, sh I mentioned that the, the Larry Kahn I keep mentioning as a co-author is also my husband, <laughs> and uh, we actually shared everything equally, so I'm not casting any aspersions on him. But in the majority of families, women are disproportionately doing the housework and uh, the childcare. Uh, men are doing more than they used to, but it's not at 50%. And that is a problem in the labor market for women uh, on a variety of dimensions. And it first, of course, ha how it influences their own decisions, uh, what areas to go into, what kind of jobs to hold, but also as it influences employers who, who can retain stereotypes and judge individual women based on the average. Oh, she's a woman, she's going to put her family first, even if she were, you know, the individual is no different. On the other hand, when you look at the jobs in the labor market, um, you know, some of them might fall into notions that you have about, you know, things that men and women might be interested in, but some of, some of them don't really. You know, they seem kind of arbitrary, and I think they go back to your point about initial conditions. Once a job gets sort of stereotyped as female, it's, it's hard to change it. Yeah, stereotyping, and I guess the stereotyping, I don't know if you looked across the world. Mm -hmm. um, I guess from a cultural perspective, such stereotyping may have much, uh, much worse negative outcomes outside the US. But yes, and, I, and, I don't and, know. And the jobs can differ, but the idea that some are for male and some are uh, some are for men and some are for women seems to stick. Like uh, I believe in India, at one point, um, most clerical workers were male. Whereas here, yeah. it's an overwhelmingly female job. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, so I wasn't going to go there. So, but I would ask you. So I grew up in South India, southwestern part of India. It's a place called Kerala. It used to be a math linear society. I think I think you mentioned it one of your papers. Oh, what, where is it again? I didn't catch the name of it. Yeah, uh, it's it called Kerala. I think that's been studied a great deal. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know. I mean, I grew up there, uh, but uh, I don't really. So I, I remember maybe 150 years ago, um, really women were in charge, <laughs> so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, and not anymore as it integrated with the rest of India and sort of the Western influence has kicked in. It is just like any other place, it, it looks to me. Uh, but we have had sort of experiments in some ways like that in the past. It'd be very interesting to see what the, what the net effects of this were. Well, if I have the right place, it's a, is it still matrilocal society? It's uh, not. It's not. But the, they did an experiment there where they looked at, you know, one of the differences, psychological differences that's 
found between men and women on average, again, not necessarily the case of each individual, is uh, uh, differences in the willingness to compete, and where women tend to shy away from competition. But I believe they, and they, they find this through experimental methods, but I believe in this area of India you're talking about, the women were uh, much more uh, interested in competing and they, they traced it to the, the matrilocal traditions there. Yeah, so I mean, if you find good data there, you know, it basically means that it's sort of the cultural bias that is sort of perpetuated across time and space. Uh, and it's very difficult, again, going back to the initial conditions, it's very difficult when you throw this down the path to turn things back. Uh, in some sense, that, that's, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, culture is hard to change, but it does change. I mean, yeah. yeah, even in 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 uh, when I first got into this area, which was quite a long time ago, um, you could hear discussions like, well, I, I don't think women could be managers. Men would <laughs> never, you know, <laughs> and women were a very small proportion of manage, managers and now they're nearly 50 percent. So change does happen. But it's sticky. Yeah, so I want to go to your next paper. So female labor supply, you talk a little bit about this. Why is the United States falling behind? Um, so you say US women had one of the highest labor force participation rates in 1990 and Western economically advanced countries. By 2010, however, even in most economically advanced countries has surpassed those United States their participation rates. So this has to be a policy issue, right? Yes, I mean, our conclusion, and we did a number of statistical analyses, but but our conclusion was uh, it, 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 that work family policy was extremely important in this difference. And there's two main uh, aspects of that. One is child care and the extent to which it is subsidized or provided by the government. Uh, and uh, the other is parental leave. And there's a stark difference between the U.S. and these other countries, individually and on average. But in the U.S., we came late to the whole business of having any mandates. But as of 1993, we have mandated 12 weeks of unpaid leave. And this is parental leave that's available to both men and women, or fathers and mothers. Um, and in the other countries, the average was over a year. So it's a huge okay. difference and generally paid. In fact, almost always paid. It's, it's paid at what we call a replacement ratio. I mean, the disincentives of paying it someone exactly as much as they would get for working, uh, for not, not working in the labor market, those disincentives are too great. So normally there's a replacement ratio. You replace some portion of the lost income. So uh, we found that that was one of the major things that was bringing more women into the labor market and uh, in those other countries uh, than in the U.S. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So 12 weeks to 52 weeks between the U.S. and OECD is huge. <laughs> it's huge. And uh, we, we, we did um, suggest that it might have different effects um, on labor force participation versus um, how women fare in the labor force itself. Because what we found is uh, participation rates were higher elsewhere and you know, surpassing the US, 
but the U.S. had the highest proportion of uh, uh, female of uh, managers and in traditionally male professions like law and medicine. And we um, speculated that the alternative of offering extremely long leave does make participation and attachment to the labor force easier and, and more attractive to women, but it may lead employers to discriminate against women because they fear if they put women into very demanding, important positions, they won't be around as long. So I think it's kind of interesting. A lot of times in policy, we think more is always better, but it sounds like it looks here and I don't have the answer, but that there might be some kind of, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> optimal amount. Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, I remember but but let me just break in for a yeah. second. <laughs> An optimal amount, but the U.S. is too low. <laughs> I will say that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't know if it's this paper or some other paper in France, I don't know what you're saying. Um, if you look at the low end of the employment spectrum, and if there's some, you know, sort of existing notions of productivity, and you increase minimum wages, you will probably see um, higher employment higher unemployment rate in women, because the hiring managers have existing notions of productivity. Um, so it's not the same phenomenon, right? Oh, uh, what's not the same phenomenon? Uh, Meaning um, the, the the economics, uh, you know, so the, the 52 week expectation in OECD. So uh -huh. when I, if I were to hire a manager, I would say, if I were to hire X or Y, I know I'm taking a penalty. <laughs> uh, a probability of just a penalty for the woman. I'm uh, just making it statistical. Right. Mm. I, I, I think that's a possibility. And of course, it doesn't eliminate that hiring entirely, but it um, potentially it, employers are looking at the, uh, you know, profit margins. And uh, there's um, productivity, I think, folded in there is the disruption, you know, if somebody uh, does leave for an extended period of time. And so, so what's your conclusion? So going back to the OECD 52 weeks, uh, US 12 weeks, uh, there is sort of conflicting benefits and disbenefits. It seems right. to be, right? So what's the sort of general conclusion of this? Yes, and I again, I don't have the magic number, but let me just back up for a minute and talk about the, um, the costs that there are also costs to women or potentially employers of having too short parental leave. And uh, the cost there is that if, say, a woman steps out and she can't get back in the 12-week window, um, she loses all her investments in that job, but the employer loses any investments that they've made already. So it's also inefficient to, in my opinion, have too short uh, parental leave. Um, so I would say, but I don't have the magic answer, uh, over 12 and probably under 52. Uh, another aspect that's important to consider is the men. And so uh, even in the U.S. and in other countries where parental leave is uh, available to both parents, 
it's disproportionately taken by women. So in the employer's mind, they're looking at the women and saying, well, how long is she going to be out? If men took more leave, then that, if you want to call it disability, would be balanced and it wouldn't work as much against women. So there are things going on in that arena. Uh, one study uh, about California, because uh, parental leave is paid for a short period of time in California, uh, they, they found more men took it when it was paid, which was interesting. And the other thing they've done in other countries, Scandinavia and a province in Canada, is to develop daddy-only leave. Daddy-only leave. So this is leave that's available to the family a number of weeks, but only if the father takes it. So it's a use it or lose it thing. If father doesn't take it, the family doesn't get it. And that has worked very well in getting men to take some. But in both these contexts, I would say the problem is still that women take the bulk of it. So that would be yeah. another way to attack it. Yeah, there's no sense. So, so there's obviously constant issues here, but but also sort of like human issue. Um, I have seen babies, you know, babies generally like their moms more <laughs> than their dads. Maybe this is my my bias. Uh, and so, I mean, again, going with the evolutionary perspective, for hundred thousand years, we sort of live like that in some ways. So, um, babies, you know, come out programmatically with some. Uh, decent operating system, and the operating system has some heuristics in it. Uh, looking for mom first, <laughs> that may not be that reliable. Uh, and so that sort of filters into ultimately what our behavior is like. Well, it could. And then, you know, the point could be made that women uh, are pregnant and women do some uh, breastfeeding. So that pushes in that direction. But it, it's also kind of hard to test what you're saying, because if it's generally the mom who's taking the dominant role, then of course the child may may be more attached to the mom, but uh, it wouldn't necessarily be the case if a father's had a bigger role. In, in my experience, <laughs> um, where my husband and I shared it, and we have two grown-up children who are doing very well, uh, they were pretty balanced between us. And moreover, I would say that um, the research on care, um, child care, tends to show it does not have a negative, you know, so that's caring for children apart from their moms for a certain amount of time a day does not seem to have ill effects. So fundamentally, all of these notions are biases. Um, it, it is called. Oh, I'm sorry. I just thought of one thing, just to interrupt yeah. for a second. Uh, as I mentioned, childcare. Childcare is a work family policy that does not have a mixed uh, potential effect on labor force and labor force participation and uh, how women do in the labor force because it is simply encourages them to be more attached. Yeah, so uh, I was just thinking, uh, Francine. So, you know, uh, we used to think that the world population is going to top in uh, 2100 around 10 billion. The latest expectation uh, from the UN and other agencies is more like 2060, perhaps at the most 9 billion. And when you talk the population, we're going to decline quite rapidly from 
So human resource could become the most valuable resource in the world in the future. And this, this will totally break every, every policy and, and, and every notion uh, that we have, right? So, I mean, it, it's a bit away, I mean, it says it's 40 years away, but do you think that's going to have an impact? Well, potentially, potentially. Um, generally speaking, uh, from the perspective of economic theory, um, we expect uh, the number of children women have and their labor force participation to be inversely related. So uh, women who have more children, we, we expect them to be less likely in the labor, to be in the labor force than uh, women who have uh, fewer children. But if you look internationally, uh, it seems like, and I, I read an interesting paper on this recently, that the countries that make it easier to combine work and family are the countries in which women are having more children. And if you get uh, countries that are still relatively quite traditional, where women have a lot of responsibilities for their own children, and even their uh, in-laws and parents, that's uh, the, the birth rate has especially plummeted. Uh, North Korea now has the, the lowest fertility rate. And uh, not North Korea, I'm sorry, South Korea has the, South Korea has the um, lowest uh, uh, fertility rate. And countries like Italy also have a very, you know, somewhat traditional uh, countries. So that, suggest to me that governments um, may try harder to make it worthwhile and of interest to women uh, to have children. But on the other side, I have to say they've been tr trying for quite a while. Um, one of the initial impetuses be behind parental leave was actually not to assist women or parents in managing work and family was to increase the birth rate. And it doesn't necessarily appear to, to have done that. So um, on the one hand, I, I would see a, a policy program that makes it easier to combine work and family as being part of something that might stem the actual in, a decrease in population that we might be facing. But on the other hand, I don't know how eager governments will be to take it up or how effective it will be. This is also a scientific question. So it's not just birth rate, but also prenatal care and you know, the sequence of building up a human being. And so, I mean, we had one country in the East who wanted to cut down population for a while. Uh, and, and now they want to ramp it back up again. This is not a manufacturing process that you can just, you know, turn the dial one way or the other. It is sort of a building up a human process. Uh, so, so I don't know if this large countries really understand the implications. Of this. The other thing that is actually quite relevant is immigration, because many of these countries that are facing this and worried about it are also opposing uh, increased immigration. And we still do have at least one continent, where Africa, where population is growing. So, yeah, so we, it's increasingly very few, as you know. Uh, you know, you have 
positive growth in India, you have some African countries growing, you have some uh, South American countries growing, very few in actually. And so from a system perspective, we clearly, we're clearly slowing down. Uh, and so, yeah, so as you say, immigration, <laughs> we, we have a president who is trying to shut down, uh, not, not the current one, but the, the one who's trying to get back on, and trying to shut down all immigration. And that would be the, the most disastrous policy if you look at the United States, I actually um, served on a commission where we reviewed uh, the evidence on immigration, and we have relied on immigrants uh, for a great deal of our population and labor force growth for a number of years now, and we've relied on immigration for uh, to fill a lot of our occupational needs, and. Uh, yeah, it's been an enormous gain to us, and it's looking very necessary going forward. And yet, we do have this uh, political backlash. Backlash, say it is. So, uh, 2017, you had a paper with the gender wage gap, extent trends, and explanations. So, this is the, the pattern study of income dynamics, PSID microdata, 1980 to uh, so, so what do we find from that data? Yeah, so one of the things that we were interested in, again with Larry Kahn, that we were interested in was um, how do we explain the gender pay gap in a descriptive sense? I'm not necessarily saying these are fundamental causes, but what accounts for um, uh, gender differences in pay? And um, it was really um, surprising, especially uh, for someone who's been studying the issue as long as I have. And I am used, very used to emphasizing human capital as being important in what determines wa uh, wages of workers overall and what determines the gender pay gap. Of course, I wasn't really surprised because I follow these issues, but it was a surprising conclusion that human capital does not explain today very much of the gender pay gap anymore. If you fast forward back to 1980, then you'd say, well, men on average are still a bit better educated than women, and men had considerably more labor force experience because women uh, still were not as strongly attached to the labor force, a little bit of a tendency to move in and out. But also, um, a lot of the women entering the labor force because female labor force participation was increasing, didn't have much prior experience. So uh, by today, or 2010, where we left off, um, again, women were better educated than men, and the experience gap was really quite small, quite small, didn't explain much. Uh, what accounted for the majority of the gender pay gap was uh, gender differences in what industry you worked in, and especially what occupation you were in, despite the gains women had made in entering some male occupations. Still, occupations were quite important. So um, the other thing that this type of analysis enables you to identify is so-called unexplained gap. That means um, a gap that you can't explain even controlling for the measure characteristics you have. So the question is, what does the unexplained gap mean? 
Uh, some people would like to associate it with discrimination uh, because um, if we've already controlled for occupation, uh, experience, education, why should women earn less? But it has been pointed out that um, there could be omitted factors that the researcher doesn't have, but the employer does have that determine pay. And if men are better endowed with those factors, say willingness to compete or willingness to negotiate, then that could help to account for some of the difference. So the unexplained gap could be uh, an overestimate of discrimination. I'd also point out it could be an underestimate because um, why are occupations different between men and women? Um, it could be some of the variables that we controlled for to get a very conservative estimate actually are um, netting out some of the effect of discrimination. So what we found even there, though, was that um, this unexplained gap accounted for 40% of the gender pay gap. So discrimination, certainly by this analysis, is, was still on the table. Uh, we also reviewed uh, other literature by other people that uh, identified as some experimental evidence to show that um, discrimination likely uh, still plays a role. But let me uh, stop, uh, change slightly the subject for a second. The other thing that we did look at was what accounted for the gains that women did make over the 1980 to 2010 period. And what we found is that on the one hand, and as I mentioned this earlier, uh, women did improve their qualifications. That's definitely one of the reasons the gender pay gap narrowed. Uh, women uh, eliminated and reversed the education gap with men. Women sent the experience gap uh, almost to zero. Uh, women, again, reduced uh, occupational differences, though they didn't eliminate them. But one interesting thing we found, especially for the 1980s, was that the unexplained gap fell. The unexplained gap fell. So I always joked when I uh, presented this paper, it's great to have a great big conclusion that an unexplained factor is extremely important. But um, going back to what could be measured by that, it could indicate a decline in, in uh, discrimination. And I personally feel there has been a decline in discrimination. Not elimination, but a decline. Uh, and I think that women have improved in terms of omitted factors, uh, motivation and career orientation, and that's probably uh, played a role. Yeah, so if you look at SMS, uh, Francine, so human capital was sort of a big factor earlier, and human factors are normalized, but we still see a difference. Uh, it's almost like if I, I, I have looked at the data uh, in detail, it's almost like we are asymptotically uh, uh, reaching some point where there is a sort of persistent gap in, uh, between the two genders. And there has to be some explanation for that gap. So I was wondering, you know, I mean, this is my bias. If you look at more egalitarian societies, Denmark, Scandinavia, New Zealand, uh, to mention a few. Uh, what do we see there? Uh, do we see some difference? 
That's a fascinating question. And that's another area that, that we have worked on. And uh, it's interesting because, especially as a, a U.S. economist, I'm, I'm, I'm used to focusing on what individuals do. You know, how much experience individual men and women have, et cetera. But what we found in comparing the U.S. experience to other countries is a major and extremely important difference was what we call wage-setting institutions. These other countries um, have a much larger role than we do in the U.S. for unions and for even various types of minimum wages, sometimes put in place by unions, sometimes other mechanisms. And what happens is for unions and minimum wages, you bring up the bottom of the distribution. And even with various advances that some of the Scandinavian countries have made, women are disproportionately at the bottom. So when you bring up the bottom, women disproportionately benefit and the gender pay gap is reduced. So I guess what I'm saying is there are government policies which to be honest, I don't know if they're very compatible with the culture in the United States, but there are government policies, labor market policies, that are not designed to reduce gender difference, but have the very positive unintended consequence of doing so. But is it artificial in some sense? So, so I can go into a country and, and sort of change policies uh, and have some good metrics, uh, but is this artificial? Is it sustainable? Is it, uh, how about the GDP? If, if I use some raw metric like GDP per capita growth or something like that, pre uh, and post policy, did I see it? Well, I mean, I haven't systematically investigated it, but I don't believe it, it has been a problem. Uh, and again, these are not policies, again, designed to um, benefit women or particularly benefiting women. It's the way they're running their economy. And uh, in general, uh, they are compressing skill differentials. And uh, that could be a problem in the long run. We, you know, I don't necessarily see uh that much evidence of that we did find in some of our work that there might be negative employment effects on the groups who you have uh, disproportionately uh, raised yeah and as, as you mentioned before experience is a big component of this uh, prediction and experience is sort of the area of the curve and so it depends on you know where you start they have some discontinuities on that curve. So uh, it is ultimately comes back to how the society is organized in some ways, right? Um, we haven't found a way to let men carry babies yet. It's coming, I think. <laughs> uh, till then, we have, a, we have a sort of an asymmetry uh, in this situation. Um, well, it's interesting. Um... Um, it may not, well, you could look at it from the other side. And, and I, I am just mentioning something that others have mentioned. I'm not sure if it can work. You could reorganize careers. 
See, on the one hand, you could reorganize who has babies or who cares for them. On the other hand, you could reorganize careers. And it's been widely pointed out that the peak investment years in highly challenging occupations uh, fall within the prime childbearing years of uh, women. So that puts women at a disadvantage, or it could. And uh, you could re-examine that. You could re-examine that. I, I uh, you know, uh, is that um, absolutely necessary? Is it something that's just arisen by chance because men were disproportionately uh, these workers? Now, another thing uh, that's interesting, and you mentioned that you had Claudia Golden on the podcast, um, yeah. is her work on flexibility. Did she discuss that? Yeah. So how is the work organized? Is it organized in a way that puts an enormous premium on even, in a negative sense, on even relatively short absences or even working a few hours less or something like that? And uh, she, she and Larry Katz have this very interesting example of uh, pharmacists where, again, not to benefit women, but uh, due to technological change, computerization of the occupation, uh, workers got much more substitutable for each other. And if workers are substitutable for each other, it's not so bad if a worker is out for a while or a worker's working a few less hours. And so then we ask, well, could what about lawyers? Could they work in teams? Uh, what about... Um, uh, some uh, business managers, could they collaborate in some way? Uh, interestingly, medicine, seen, I, I haven't seen any evidence that's benefiting women at this point, but just the casual, we call casual empiricism, medicine seems to be moving a bit in that direction, right? Does your doctor really know who you are? Are they pulling your record up on the computer? And then would it be okay if one of their colleagues saw you? Yeah, so I, I had a totally uh, different view of this, uh, uh, Francine. So I wrote a book in 2009, it's called Flexibility, in which I argued men should not be uh, leading complex organizations like countries, companies, large companies, and anything like that, because I, I argued with bias that men, has, men have a process orientation they're very good in processes and very good in processing data and all that stuff. And we see that in education too. But women have always been consensus builders. Have been what? Years. Sorry. Consensus, building consensus. They're very good at that. I think you mentioned it in one of your papers. And so if you look at you know sort of the higher levels of organizations, that skill is basically about building consensus. It's nothing to do with analytics, nothing to do with data analysis or anything. And so not many people bought this book. So yeah, it wasn't that great. Uh, but I mean, there is a, you know, I, I continue to argue there is a gender difference of some sort. I mean, like maybe 30, 40 years, like you said. Uh, the question is, how does society use that gender difference optimally? Uh, that part, I don't think we have figured it out. Well, it's interesting too, because um... Whether gender differences on these kinds of traits, uh, cooperation, um, social skills, 
on the one hand, areas where women may have advantages, um, competitiveness, uh, risk-taking, areas where men might have an advantage, uh, whether they are innate, biological, or due to socialization isn't actually such a big deal because it, even if they're due to socialization, it's going to take a while <laughs> before it changes. You know, they're still going to be true on average. So on the one hand, I certainly don't think we should stereotype people and we shouldn't like promote a woman because, ah, oh, she's going to bring, she's a woman, she'll bring <laughs> consensus. She might not. She might be just like the most um, assertive guy you might have put in. That. But um, I'm intrigued by your idea of, um, of, uh, of wor uh, working on um, leveraging the skills that each group has because, um, you know, I go back to the time again, when women were quite rare in management, rare in management, and uh, people just assumed, well, they're not going to advance anywhere till they can learn to be just like men. And so the idea that whether it's socialization or anything else, that women may have different, on average, managerial styles, and that could work. I don't know if I go for, so far as you say, every single corporation or whatever, but maybe there's a context in which it works better and there's a context uh, in which um, the, the, the male approach works less well, or maybe the combination, men and women working together, that might be one of the gains of diversity, bringing people with different skills and orientations to work together, though, not necessarily to replace each other. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not just C-level execs, but also the bull conversation. Uh, I think we have, improved. I remember like five years ago, I launched um, uh, uh, an airplane uh, CEO saying, I finally realized that people who sit around the team all look like me. <laughs> uh, and it took him seven years to recognize this. It is a big problem. So that goes in the diversity question. So I want to finish up with your latest thing. Gender inequality in the labor market continuing progress question mark. Uh, you say here one theme that has emerged in considering women's uh, past and future progress in the labor market is that while substantial gains have been made, further progress is likely to require further policy intervention. Uh, you say here, let me post by considering in a bit more detail what might be done in, in two broad areas. So work family policy. We talk a bit about that and anti-discrimination policy. So you want to talk about from a policy perspective what those two things go into. Yeah, so I guess what I'd like to do is sort of jump start things again. And you know, I can't totally rule out that they might pick up on their own, but you know, 25 to 30 years is a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh okay, so in the work family area, I think we covered that pretty well. Yeah. I think in the U.S. we do need more parental leave time. Uh, I think we do need to um, think about how we can incentivize uh, men to take leave more often. And I do think we have to get um, childcare on a firmer basis. And let me just also mention here, we're talking not just about the well-being of women, we're talking about the well-being of the next generation, which is extremely precious. And uh, we have a situation in the U.S. in terms of childcare, 
where this is one of the lowest paid occupations. Uh, I have some tremendous people in it because they're so devoted, but it's uh, relatively low paid. And uh, during COVID, I think people realized that, you know, there is this problem of if we confront a pandemic, people in all these face-to-face -face areas realize there's a potentially high cost. Um, so we lost people. We lost people in the area. And so we're having problems uh, with availability even and price for, for working families. So uh, that's something we, we, we really need to do more on. And then um, it's a little more complicated in the anti-discrimination area because actually in this area, the U.S. was a leader. We passed our anti-discrimination laws in the mid-1960s, and that was before most other countries. Uh, so I think we have some excellent laws. Uh, there's a couple of problems with them. And, and, and just to back up, I mean, we have uh, particularly Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which basically outlaws uh, discrimination in any aspect of the employment relationship, pay, promotion, uh, working conditions, etc. cetera. Uh, but we have a couple of problems. One problem is these are, it's a federal law and the enforcement of it has waxed and waned. It's increased and decreased depending on who's sitting in the CEO position, who, yes. who the president is. <laughs> so that gives it, uh, you know, um, a little bit of a, um, um, discontinuities there. And we also, I don't think this is easily changed as part of the uh, first point I'm making, uh, is that the, um, the Supreme Court had a decision which makes it relatively harder than it used to be to have what we, they call a class action case. So class action case means that I'm suing you. What do your employees look like? <laughs> I'm suing you. Uh, but not uh, just how you treated an individual, but how you're treating a class of people, perhaps women, perhaps minorities. And uh, that's clearly much more efficient and effective than going one by one. So there may be a bit more of a problem than there used to be in these class action cases. The other thing is it's a very time, time consuming process. I mean, it's just years if somebody uh, decides to sue their employer. It could just be years until the case is resolved. And uh, understandably, a number of people just say, I'll vote by my, with my feet. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try and find another job or I'll suck it up and stay here. People are also scared that if they become the grease, uh, the, the, um, what do you call the nail, the, um, Anyway, the creaky, <laughs> the creaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So they don't want to be known as troublemaker. So um, one interesting thing to think about is policies that might be more proactive. And both the policies I'm going to mention have already been implemented in particular states. Uh, but we're just finding out if, uh, how effective they may be. And one interesting policy is called a salary history ban. Yeah. And what it does is ban uh, the employer from 
when they're hiring, asking the applicants previous salary on their last job. And the reason why um, this has been advocated is that if there's generally discrimination in the labor market, then it's just passed on to the next job if the employer can find out uh, what the person was making. So this has some promise and you can see it's proactive. It doesn't rely on uh, someone being discriminated against by the employer, but it just um, uh, acts without that or having to present evidence of that. And then the other interesting thing is uh, greater transparency. And that's been implemented again in some states and also uh, in other countries. Um, we have it in uh, New York actually, where there's a law that if you post a job, you have to post the bans the salary bans yeah. you're looking at. That's an example of transparency. So you can see how that might be helpful to new applicants, uh, you know, uh, in terms of negotiation. If I'm coming in and there's a band like this and employer offers me the low, and I, if I don't know it's the low end, I don't know I, sh I should try and get more. And women are more reluctant to negotiate than men, so this might give women more ammunition. It could affect people who are already in the job too, because I'm sitting there. Maybe my employer's, at, at, you know, advertising for more people. I say, wait a minute, that's pretty much what I'm making. I'm, you know, much more. Yeah, you know, let me bump that up. Uh, other transparency could go further, and it could um, uh, require employers to let workers find out what their coworkers are making. That's one of the problems of enforcing our anti-discrimination laws. A lot of uh, employers discourage workers from finding out what their co-workers are making. So, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to say, uh, I quite like that. Uh, transparency uh, bans that an employer can pose that sort of reduces some certainty. Uh, I also quite like this idea of Historical prices don't really. Well, what him. prices? I'm sorry. Uh, historical prices, meaning, you know, mm -hmm. you go back and say, tell, show me last 20 years what you made. It's not really relevant for this particular transaction. You're trying to do, we don't do that in product. So why do we do this in finance? Well, you get everybody's, you know, I mean, I'm not obviously i mentioned changing it was a good idea but you can see from the employer's perspective they they kind of want to know what the minimum amount they need to pay to get you to come is uh but again as one court decision said it's the way market-wide discrimination gets um transferred to new to new uh, employment so excellent excellent fancy thanks so much for spending time with me Oh, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you.